Hello and welcome to the summer 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me as always is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. So we have a lot of U.S. Supreme Court developments to talk about this month. I hope everyone uh, wants to hear about U.S. Supreme Court news. Um, First up, uh, we'll start with the good news. Can you bring our listeners up to speed on what the justices did in Pavan versus Smith, Art? Okay, Pavan versus Smith, and uh, this was the most slam-dunk decision you could possibly have. Uh, this, This arose in Arkansas where the state was refusing to put on birth certificates the names of the same-sex partners of the birth mothers, even though they were married, uh, albeit married out of state in this case, because this was happening shortly after Obergefell uh, went into effect. Uh, And uh, the state took the position that if they wanted to be listed, they had to adopt. They had to go through the whole proceeding, and it's expensive, and there's a home study and all kinds of stuff. Uh, And they said, no, from the get-go, when the kid is born, my name should be there because I am the spouse of the birth mother. And under state law, the spouse of a birth mother gets listed. And Arkansas said, no, the husband gets listed. You're not a husband. Uh, So uh, they went into uh, state court, and the trial judge agreed with them. Uh, Not too surprising. It was the same trial judge who ruled in the marriage equality case. Uh, evidently, uh, the state capital in Arkansas has a liberal trial judge. <laughs> so uh, uh, they took it up. Uh, the state Supreme Court reversed. The state Supreme Court said that uh, in our state, uh, who gets listed on the birth certificate is about biology. It's about connecting a newborn child with his biological parents. And uh, the challengers here said, no, that's, that's a bit strange because from what we understand under the state's artificial insemination statutes, uh, the husband gets listed even though he is not the biological father of the child. And if there's an adoption, you get a new birth certificate listing the adoptive parents even though one or both of them may not be biological uh, parents of the child, which means that birth certificates are not all about biology. They're about parental-child relationships. Yeah. Uh, so at any rate, the Arkansas Supreme Court, which was split on the issue, uh, and then uh, a petition went up to the Supreme Court for uh, for certiorari, and the court didn't even sit on it very long. Uh, the petition was not filed very long before the uh, the uh, decision decision was made. But they just uh, and, and took they, the case and decided it. They just they decided. I mean, there was a little bit of suspense. Are they going to grant review or they're not going to grant review? They grant review and simultaneously issued a procurium decision on the merits reversing the Arkansas Supreme Court. Uh, it was a procurium, so we technically don't know who signed it, but we know a majority of the court supported it. We know who the three that didn't sign yes, it. Yes, we know that, we know. that uh, newly appointed Justice Gorsuch, in one of his first dissenting opinions, uh, was joined by who, uh, who are going to be his frequent partners, I think, uh, Alito and Thomas, uh, aligning himself with them. Uh, The majority said, look, Obergefell said that same-sex couples have a right to the full constellation of benefits, rights and benefits that the state associates with marriage, which means you can't treat same-sex and different-sex couples differently. If you have a rule that the spouse of a birth mother is entitled to be listed on the birth certificate, you've got to apply it to all marriages. 
and they said, and besides, in the Obergefell decision, we made a list of various rights and benefits that same-sex couples were being denied by excluding them from marriage, and we listed birth certificates there. It's clear. That was one of the issues that was being decided in the case, and in fact it was, because remember, Obergefell was a consolidation of several cases. Some of them involve uh, denial of marriage licenses, but some of them involve denial of recognition of marriages to people who had been uh, married elsewhere, and that had manifested itself in some cases with denial of listing people on birth certificates. So this issue was implicated in Obergefell. Uh, All right, so that's the position of the majority of the court, at least five members, possibly six. We don't know where Chief Justice Roberts A lot of interesting down. speculation on blogs yeah. and such about this. Because procuriums are not signed. So we don't know. Uh, if, you, if someone didn't dissent, we assume that they didn't feel strongly enough to dissent, or maybe they just didn't want to associate themselves with the dissent, or maybe they just didn't want to go on record at all, uh, since their vote wasn't needed here. Uh, and remember, so, this is the guy who said that the Constitution has, has nothing, nothing to, to do, do with, with the Obergefell. Yeah. So some people find it hard to believe. But Gorsuch's dissent, I mean, this was uh, an object of quite a bit of criticism because it seemed to reflect a level of illiteracy that one wouldn't expect from a person of his intellectual and educational attainments. He says, Obergefell does not clearly address this, even though the procurium opinion says... Obergefell clearly addresses this, uh, both in saying that uh, same-sex marriages have to be treated the same by the state as different-sex marriages, and in mentioning birth certificates yeah, is one, one of the of issues. A constellation of benefits. And, and in fact, the court said uh, in the procuring opinion, it was no accident that they mentioned birth certificates because that was involved in some of the cases. Uh, so we decided this, and... Uh, Gorsuch scolds the court. He says, you don't do uh, a summary uh, reversal procurium like this unless the law is clearly settled, and it's not. And the court says, just a minute, the, the law is clearly settled. So what we have here is Gorsuch sending a signal. He's sending a signal to uh, all the conservatives out there who were eager for Trump to replace Scalia with someone who would be at least as conservative. And the signal he was sending is, I'm more conservative than Scalia. I'm conservative like Thomas and Alito, who were happy to sign on to his uh, ridiculous dissent. Uh, but one would hope that people would recognize that this is a dissent and that the majority uh, went in a completely different direction. But yet, uh, the Texas Supreme Court seemed to only read the Gorsuch dissent when their decision came out four days later on yeah. a similar issue. The Texas Supreme this was this was a real puzzle. And, and I should mention that the day after the Supreme Court decided Pavan versus Smith, the Arizona Supreme Court was hearing argument on the same issue of birth certificates. And you'd think that would be a slam dunk, one would hope. But the state Supreme Courts, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we're recording this on, uh, on July 20th. 20th. July 20th. And in today's New York Times, Linda Greenhouse has a very interesting op-ed column about how the meaning of a Supreme Court decision depends on how the lower courts interpret it. That, you know, the Supreme Court, is, it may be deciding broad principles, but it's actually deciding the case before it. And subsequent cases raising those issues, it will depend how the lower courts interpret the Supreme Court's opinion. And I thought that was an interesting coincidence given what's happening here. So the Texas Supreme Court, uh, this involves uh, employee benefits for same-sex spouses of employees of the city of Houston. 
And after the Windsor decision came down, uh, the mayor of Houston and the city attorney looked at that and they said, okay, we have employees here in the city of Houston who have gone out of state to get married. They had to go out of state because Texas had a uh, mini-DOMA, Defensive Marriage Act, no marriage is allowed, no marriage will be recognized for same-sex couples. And they even had a specific provision uh, barring payment of benefits to same-sex partners in state law. Uh, for municipalities. So uh, they took a look at that and they said, we think in light of the Windsor decision that all that stuff is probably unconstitutional and that we have to recognize the same-sex spouses of our municipal employees. And so they administratively extended benefits to uh, same-sex partners, of uh, not just partners, mar- uh, marital partners, spouses. Who went out of state and got married. Who went out of state and got married. So these uh, two guys... Uh, Pigeon and what's his name here? Jack Pigeon and Larry Hicks, who are evidently right-wing activist types. Uh, they went into court and they said that the city is doing something illegal here because Texas law forbids paying these benefits to same-sex partners and Texas law forbids recognizing their marriages. And they persuaded the trial judge to issue a TRO against the city uh, to not pay the benefits while this thing was litigated. Uh the thing was appealed, and uh, the Texas Court of Appeals reversed on the TRO. Uh, and uh, then there was an appeal to the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, and, and the Texas Court of Appeals, when it reversed, it was reversing because the Supreme Court had just decided Obergefell by the time uh, they got around to deciding the case. Right. Uh, and uh, immediately after Obergefell, within, uh, I think, a week or two, the Fifth Circuit had come out with a ruling on pending appeals in marriage equality cases in that circuit, which included Texas, and the DeLeon case. Uh, they affirmed the uh, U.S. District Court and found that the Texas DOMA was unconstitutional and the Texas ban on same-sex marriage and refused to recognize it was unconstitutional. Uh, so the but Texas the- Court of Appeals now said, we're going to send this back to the trial court and say, decide this consistent with the DeLeon case from the Fifth Circuit. All right, so this was appealed to the Texas Supreme Court was just laughed at out of court originally. They, we, don't, we don't want to deal with this. You know, Let the district uh, trial judge on remand follow the ruling. But that lit a fire under all the strongly anti-gay forces in control of the state government of Texas, the Republican governor and attorney general and uh, the uh, legislative leaders. The, this, uh, the election of Donald Trump also, yeah, I think, uh, had a lot, a lot to do fire. with this. Yeah, so they peppered the Supreme Court with motions and petitions to agree to take this appeal. And the Supreme Court, this is very strange, the Supreme Court changed its mind and decided to take the appeal. In January. And this is one of the bizarre things. They said, we received letters and postcards, and we decided to treat them as amicus briefs. (laughs) It's bizarre. Uh, We have to remember the Texas Supreme Court is a solidly Republican bench. And all elected. All elected and re-elected. Yes. Uh, so uh, they uh, they agreed to take it, and they said, we affirm the ruling of the Court of Appeals holding that this has to be reconsidered, but not in light of De Leon, because the De Leon decision is a decision of the Fifth Circuit, and constitutional rulings of the Fifth Circuit are not binding on the Texas courts. Now, Southern court systems tend to be very touchy about this. Uh, I think it, it's... A heritage of uh, of John C. Calhoun and 
you know, of the Jackson conflict. And yes. At any rate, they said federal courts, the only federal court that has a right to tell us what to do is the U.S. Supreme Court. And then they said, and this is the bizarre thing, they seem to be channeling Gorsuch's dissent in Pavan, as you indicated. And they said, and so uh, Pigeon and Hicks should have an opportunity to try to make their case to the trial judge that Obergefell does not require the payment of employee benefits to the spouses, the same-sex spouses of uh, Houston employee. Um, I mean, this is bizarre. Yeah. I mean, this... Uh, they said it's not clear that Obergefell decided this. It's up to the trial court, and they got to get a chance to make their case when they should have just outright dismissed this case. Yeah. I mean, you also have to think the, the core argument that they're going to make on remand, if you look at their briefing, is, again, the procreation argument that we saw in all the marriage litigation for years and years. Which the Supreme Court rejected. And it has even less... Uh, pertinence to a city, you know, the city acting as an employer, that somehow the city only offering benefits to straight couples uh, will, you know, encourage procreation. As if, you know, people make their decision to work for the city of Houston because they only offer uh, benefits to married same or married straight couples. Well, but even setting that aside, uh, one of the other aspects of Pavan was, of course, that the procurium opinion said, look, we mentioned birth certificates. We obviously decided that issue. Well, you know what? They also mentioned in that list of things that was denied to married same-sex couples. Yeah. Insurance, which is what this benefits case yeah. is all about. So they decided that one as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're a little more animated and excited than we usually are on these podcasts because this is so ridiculous. Yes. But what it does do, it probably it'll probably take a year or two to go through a trial, go to the... Mid-level court there should appeals. be motions for summary judgment. And uh, they're trying to probably set up a process that gets them a couple more years to maybe get to, eventually, get to a different U.S. Supreme Court. Well, this is, this is a theory that uh, people are going to keep bringing these cases in hopes that eventually it will get up to a Supreme Court on which Donald Trump has gotten to appoint another judge or two. Yeah. And the three oldest judges on the U.S. Supreme Court are, of course, Justice Ginsburg, who's the oldest, and Justice Kennedy and Justice Breyer. And they are all hoping that one of those is going to step down or die before Donald Trump's term is over. Now, I think uh, if, uh, if this happens during the third or fourth year of a Trump term, the Democrats should take the position that Trump doesn't get to appoint the new judge because we should have election first and let right. the voters decide who right. appoints the new judge. Well, but that won't work unless the Democrats win a majority of the Senate, unfortunately. Right. Which and depends on de- defeating Ted Cruz, which is going to be an uphill yeah. climb yeah. in 2018. Um, but one of the good other good things that we didn't mention that happened at the end of the term was there was no retirement announcement from right. Justice Kennedy. No so retirement announcement. And, in fact, Justice Kennedy hired a full crew of clerks for the coming uh, term. Mm-hmm. And knocking on your wooden desk, that means yeah. you probably have them at least for another term. Yeah, but the problem we have is these justices are elderly, you know, and uh, Justice Ginsburg has had her health problems over the years. If you look She's, at the John McCain news today, things you know, just happen when you're in things your Things happen. It's, it's, uh, it's unpredictable. Uh, and we also know, if you look back at history, the only president going way, 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 way back who didn't get a chance to appoint anyone to the Supreme Court was Jimmy Carter. All right. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, when we have so many old justices, we have to assume that Trump is going to get another pick unless he's out of there. And if he's out of there and it's Pence's picking, we're not going to be any happier in terms of the outcome for LGBT rights. So uh, that's one of the reasons why the next story up is so important for us. We would like the Supreme Court is currently constituted to address the issue that's going to be talked about next. All right. We'll take a short break. When we return, we'll discuss an important case the Supreme Court uh, agreed to decide next year. We are back. On the same day the Supreme Court decided Pavan, the court also announced, uh, finally, after looking at the case uh, in dozens, or not dozens, not dozens, plural, dozen uh, conferences, uh, that it had granted cert in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. What issues and ramifications does this case present, Art? Well, this case poses the burning question whether a baker is really a cake artist. Because that's how Alliance Defending Freedom, who's representing Jack Phillips of Master Pete Cake Shop, uh, is characterizing his client. He's saying he's a cake artist. When he bakes a cake, it's a work of art. And a work of art has First Amendment expressive protection. It's an expression of the artist's creativity. Uh, And therefore, it violates his First Amendment free speech rights to tell him he must bake a cake in honor of an occasion which he does not want to support. And furthermore, he has religious objections as well. This is a cake that was ordered by a same-sex couple. They were going out of state to get married because at the time this all uh, took place, uh, there was no same-sex marriage available in Colorado. So they were going out of state to marry, and they were planning to come back and hold a big celebration for all their family and friends. And, of course, they wanted a wedding cake, and they went to Masterpiece Cake Shop because that's the place you go for the really super deluxe wedding cake (laughs) in Colorado. I mean, you can tell by the name, Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's a masterpiece. So they went, and uh, as soon as Mr. Phillips heard that they wanted a cake for a same-sex wedding celebration, he said, no way. He said, I don't approve. Uh, Religious objections, blah, blah, blah. And and importantly, he did not even ask what they wanted on the cake. Right. And they immediately said that, you know, he he knew they were a gay couple that wanted uh, a cake to celebrate their wedding. They actually got married in another state at the time, but right. they were having some kind of celebration right. event. They were coming back and having yes. to celebrate. And uh, that was all he needed to say, you know, we, I'm not going to do this. I think he was primed and ready for that uh, because these sorts of cases were popping up all over the country. So they publicized what had happened, that they'd been turned down, and they were immediately offered a free wedding cake by a competing bakery, which they took. But they went to the Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission, and they filed their complaint saying that this violated the state law banning sexual orientation discrimination by places of public accommodation, and a cake shop that sells cakes to the public is a place of public accommodation. Uh, The commission agreed with them, ruled in their favor. Uh, Mr. Phillips appealed the ruling to the State Court of Appeals, which rejected the appeal and held that this is not the kind of, baking a cake is not the kind of expressive activity that enjoys First Amendment protection. This is a commercial activity. Uh, Certainly uh, a cake shop is not an expressive association uh, like the cases in which courts have required free speech exceptions to civil rights laws, like the famous Hurley case 
uh, where the Supreme Court unanimously said that the people who organized the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Boston could exclude the gay Irish group. You even did a Boston accent there. Yeah. I, <laughs> Boston. Boston. Well, I went to school there, you yes. know. <laughs> Not long enough to pick it up. Everyone accused me of having a Long Island accent when I was in law school. But at any rate, uh, so uh, they rejected that. And on the religious point, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a decision dating back 25 years now, Employment Division versus Smith, uh, an opinion by Justice Scalia for the court, holding that people do not enjoy a right under the free exercise clause to be exempted from complying with the requirements of neutral state laws of general application. A neutral state law of general application is one that applies to everybody. It doesn't just target religious organizations. Uh, and that isn't specifically about religion. It's about something else, but it might have an incidental effect. So the public accommodations law is clearly a neutral state law of general application, even though it may incidentally affect the free exercise of religion of somebody. There's no First Amendment exemption. If you're going to find an exemption, you're going to have to find it in a Religious Freedom Restoration Act that specifically creates an exemption. And they don't have one in Colorado. All right. So it seems to me that unless the court is going to change its position on one or the other of those doctrinal issues of the free speech or the free exercise, this is an easy case. Uh, and in fact, all the appellate courts that have been faced with this precise sort of question in connection with same-sex weddings have ruled the same way. We don't have a split here of appellate authority. And so uh, it's sort of strange that the Supreme Court granted review, and they took a long time to decide, I think, that was partly because for most of the time when they were deciding, this petition was filed last July, almost a year ago. In fact, I think it was July 22, almost exactly a year ago. Uh, they only had eight members of the court. And uh, I think not knowing who was going to fill that ninth seat, neither the four pro-gay people on the court or the four anti-gay people on the court knew how this would come out if they granted review. It only takes four votes to grant review. But not knowing how it was going to come out, neither side wanted to provide the four votes, so the case just lingered until they finally had Justice Gorsuch participating in conference, and obviously he tipped the balance there. Uh, I think the conservatives figure we've got a shot at getting him. Unless, of course, Gorsuch, who idolized Scalia, decides that Employment Division versus Smith is not a precedent he wants to change. Although the, the other thing here is in recent memory, is the Hobby Lobby decision, which has scared a lot of people into thinking that they might yeah, go even Hobby further Lobby and master these cakes. But how the Hobby Lobby was not a constitutional case. We have to emphasize that over and over again, yeah. uh, that the court did not in any way address Employment Division versus Smith because that was brought under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, and the court said under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, if a federal statute of general, a neutral federal statute of general application burdens someone's free exercise of religion, and it's a federal statute, then the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed by Congress, actually in response to Employment Division versus Smith, creates an exception. To the extent that uh, the government would have the burden of showing that it had a compelling state interest uh, that would justify imposing this burden because uh, you couldn't have a, a more narrowly tailored statute and achieve that interest. And, and uh, in the Hobby Lobby case, the court said, uh, we will concede that the government has an interest in providing birth control, but they could have um, 
more narrowly tailor the interest in ways that wouldn't require the uh, religiously objecting corporate owners to spend their own money for a form of birth control that they have religious objections to. It was a complicated case. Right. It's still being played out in, in subsequent litigation on, on that issue of birth control under employee benefit plans. Uh, but this case, the interesting thing is after the court finally granted cert, uh, there was another case lingering out there involving a florist, uh, Baron L. Stutzman, out in the state of Washington, who refused to uh, sell a floral arrangement for a same-sex wedding uh, to someone who was one of, his, one of her repeat customers who she knew was gay. She said, I'd be happy to sell you flowers for anything else, but I don't believe in same-sex marriages. It's against my religion. And furthermore, I'm a flower artist, and I have freedom of expression. Well, I think that that uh, theory was thought up for her by the Alliance Defending Freedom, who are on her case as well. I doubt the court's going to take another case of this issue, but I think they're trying to make the point to the court that, look at how many contacts this is popping up in. It's a huge problem. So they filed a a cert petition on uh, the 14th of July. Uh, Their deadline to file a cert petition was a lot earlier in the year, but they asked for an extension because I think they wanted to see what was going to happen in Masterpiece Cake Shop. And if Masterpiece Cake Shop was granted, then they were going to file a cert petition in this case as well. Because what happens is uh, this petition goes up to the court, and the court will probably just sit on it until they decide Masterpiece Cake Shop. And then depending how they decide it, they'll either dismiss this petition or grant it in summarily reverse or something. But in this case also, uh, the state civil rights people and the state courts, in this case the Washington Supreme Court, said, look, you know, this business, you know, floral artists and stuff. He said, arranging flowers doesn't send a specific message that needs to be protected on the First Amendment freedom of speech. And as to the religion thing, Employment Division versus Smith. You know, you've got to comply with the public accommodations law. And in both of these cases, there were fines imposed by these businesses. And in the case of uh, the Arlene's Flowers from, uh, from Washington, my understanding is they did some crowdfunding, and the the fine was easily paid off by uh, right wingers who were eager to see her stay in business. So the baker in this case also did a television interview on the View recently, which you can find on YouTube if you're interested. But he, he said some interesting things in the interview. But he also said he's completely stopped doing wedding cakes, which has uh, been a big his business. business. Yeah, because yeah, that was that was his big thing, wedding cakes. Um, but and, and the doctrinal points, I'll just mention something else that I talked to you about before we started recording, was I, I heard, um, I went to an interesting panel a couple of weeks ago that Kenji Yoshino was on. He was talking about uh, another First Amendment versus gay rights case uh, in 2006 involving the Solomon Amendment uh, and some of the law schools who sued on a First Amendment theory saying that complying with the Solomon Amendment uh, violated their First Amendment rights of t- the, to voice disagreement with that and, policy. And we should mention, for folks who, who may not uh, understand the reference, the Solomon Amendment was a provision of federal law that said a law school that didn't allow equal access to military recruiters could lose federal funding. Yeah. And uh, military recruiters uh, had been excluded by many law schools because of the military's anti-gay policies. And uh, so this group called uh, FAIR uh, it was a, a coalition of uh, law schools and law student groups filed suit to claim that that violated the First Amendment rights of the law schools. And the court said, well, no, you know, letting military recruiters in isn't like the law school saying we approve of anti-gay discrimination. Right. And Professor Yoshino is saying he thinks that's what the court, or and certainly hopes that's what the court will say here, is that 
producing a cake uh, for a gay couple, um, in no way, no reasonable person assumes that you are endorsing the marriage of the person you're baking a cake for. And, and I would resort to an old employment law concept of the work for hire. I mean, the idea is when you go into a bake shop to get a wedding cake, you're not trying to buy an endorsement for your wedding. You're trying to buy a wedding cake. Yeah. And uh, no one thinks that the wedding cake is uh, a political statement by the baker. Right. It may be an artistic statement in terms of the artistry with which it's done, but that doesn't communicate a message about same-sex marriages as opposed to any other marriages. And just to bring him up again, but Justice Kennedy, again, is who everyone is thinking about, again, as being the key uh, vote uh, in this case. And he's got a bit of a mixed record in First Amendment versus LGBT rights cases. He voted... Uh, he voted with a, in favor of the Boy Scouts in that case, uh, but more recently uh, sided with Justice Ginsburg's opinion in uh, a Christian Legal Society versus Martinez right. case. Um, so it's hard to exactly predict what he might do here. Right, but I think it's possible that uh, this won't be a five to four. I think it's possible that well, that we could win this six to three. Yeah, maybe even seven to two. Who knows? Uh, not, I don't think we'll ever get Alito's vote on any case yeah. where many people are making a religious freedom claim. Uh, Thomas, who knows? Gorsuch? Gorsuch, of course, is a puzzle. All we have on him on gay rights so far at the Supreme Court is his ridiculous dissent in the Pawan case. Yeah. And uh, where that takes us on religious issues, who knows? Yeah. All right. Uh, a lot to chew on there. We will take another short break. And when we return, we'll just... Our last Supreme Court segment for this uh, podcast, I promise. But we'll discuss another important case the Supreme Court may decide next year. We're back. The 11th Circuit uh, denied on-bank review of a panel decision that uh, ruled that Title VII does not cover sexual orientation discrimination. And Lambda Legal has promised a cert petition at the Supreme Court. What are the stakes here, Art? Well, this is a, uh, a rapidly developing story that we've been talking about a lot over the past year. And that is an issue that was bubbling around in the district courts for the longest time has finally surfaced at the Court of Appeals level uh, in a way that has created a circuit split. And once you have a circuit split, the odds are good that you're going to get a question to the Supreme Court. So the issue here is how to interpret old statutes. And by old statutes, I mean statutes that date back decades. In the case of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is an issue here, uh, a statute that dates back more than half a century. So it was passed in 1964. And uh, at the time, uh, the bill that was reported out of committee to the House of Representatives, which was the first chamber to take it up, did not even mention discrimination because of sex. That was added as a floor amendment. And there was not much substantive debate that accompanied it. Uh, The bill went to the Senate under a closed rule. It didn't go to a committee. It went right to the floor with limited amendments. And uh, there was also not much legislative history generated about what Congress intended when they added sex to the bill. But shortly afterwards, both the EEOC and the district courts were asked by uh, gay and transgender plaintiffs to take up discrimination claims under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and they unanimously refused to do so. They said Congress did not intend 
to outlaw discrimination against homosexuals and transsexuals, as they put it in those days. Uh, and they were probably right in terms of congressional intent, that no one during 1964 consideration of the statute was talking about these issues. Uh, opponents of the statute weren't even claiming that you better not put sex in there because that'll protect homosexuals. I don't think that was an issue. It wasn't on the radar of Congress in 1964. Uh, but it became on the radar over the ensuing decades. Uh, the first uh, sort of chink in the armor on uh, Title VII having a very narrow definition of sex came when the Supreme Court started accepting the argument that discriminating against someone because of their failure or their uh, conforming to a stereotype about their sex uh, was found to be disqualifying in some way by the employer. And the case that we usually talk about a lot is the Price Waterhouse case, uh, in which a woman was turned down for a partnership at Price Waterhouse, and the evidence showed that some of the partners who voted against her were upset because she was too masculine in her demeanor, she was loud, she was profane, she did not dress in the way they thought a woman partner should dress, she was more butch in her appearance, she was not a lesbian, she was just a loud, profane, aggressive woman who actually had the best record in her, uh, in her office in terms of getting new business. And the partners in her office supported her, but the partners in the rest of the firm couldn't take her. Uh, and the Supreme Court in the resulting Title VII case said that denying a promotion to someone because of their failure to conform to the stereotype of how a woman is supposed to behave and look and groom, et cetera, et cetera, is a form of sex discrimination. It's evidence of discriminatory animus based on sex. Uh, and it took a while, but ultimately courts began to use that concept of sex stereotyping to allow transgender people and gay people to bring discrimination claims, depending on the circumstances. It wasn't a slam dunk, and they would say, we're not allowing you to sue because of sexual orientation or gender identity. We're allowing you to sue because you have alleged facts that would support the argument that you suffered an adverse decision in the workplace because of your failure to conform to a gender stereotype. And using that theory, several courts of appeals now have taken the position that uh, transgender people can sue under Title VII for discrimination. Almost by definition, they say transgender people defy gender stereotypes. Uh, but it's been a harder argument to make on sexual orientation. Yep. Uh, the argument that seems to be carrying the day in some of the courts is also the stereotyping argument, and that the stereotype that gay people don't conform to is the stereotype of heterosexuality. Uh, and and uh, also the idea that sexual orientation is an aspect of someone's sex and their sexual identity and the way they express their sexual identity. Uh, there's also an associational theory that is discriminating against people because they emotionally and sexually associate with people of the same sex. And this analogy is drawn to uh, racial association theory because several courts, including the Second Circuit, in a relatively recent case, have held that if an employee suffers discrimination because they've engaged in an interracial relationship, that's a form of race discrimination. Well then, if they suffer discrimination because they have a relationship with a person of the same sex, that must be sex discrimination by analogy. So these different theories bubbling around. 
and the EEOC... Almost uh, two years ago now. Yeah, in, in 2015, the EEOC... In fact, it was in July, yep. mid-July, so it was almost exactly two years ago. The EEOC changed its position, which it had held for a half a century, and it said, whichever of these theories you pose, we think they cumulatively add up to support the idea that sexual orientation is, in fact, sex discrimination. And quite a few district judges around the country have bought the theory as well, although it's been harder for them to do it because of older circuit precedents rejecting it. Uh, So in order to get this issue to the Supreme Court, where ultimately I think it needs to be decided, you needed to get a split in the circuits. As long as all the circuits were going the same way, there would seem to be no reason for the Supreme Court to take it up unless there was a clear majority on the Supreme Court for changing the precedent. Uh, and it's not clear that there is. You know, that It's all speculative as to what would happen to the Supreme Court. But what happened is the Seventh Circuit, as we reported in a prior podcast, the Seventh Circuit uh, recently ruled on bank in the Hively case that sexual orientation discrimination claims are sex discrimination claims and are covered under Title VII. First Circuit Court to do so. Uh, since then, the Eleventh Circuit, had, which had ruled adversely in a sexual orientation case in uh, Jamaica Evans against Georgia Regional Hospital, denied Lambda Legal's petition for on-bank review. Uh, and at the same time, several... Uh, three judge panels in the Second Circuit had refused to uh, buy this theory of Title VII coverage on uh, sexual orientation because of older precedents. Although we got a, a very strong concurrence. Yeah, well, we got a strong concurring opinion in the Christensen case in yeah. the Second Circuit where uh, the chief judge of the circuit said, look, it's time for us to reconsider this. Look at what's happening around the country. Look at what's happening with the EEFC. Look at Obergefell and Windsor and the idea that you can get married on the weekend and then get fired for getting married on Monday right. by your employer. So, although not in the Second Circuit, because every state in the Second Circuit bans sexual orientation discrimination, but it would be nice to have the feds uh, as and, well. And the Second Circuit is now going on, on bond. Yeah, on the, the Second question. Circuit. Not on the Christensen case, because right. uh, that was remanded uh, and uh, a uh, the petition, case. Yeah, a petition for on-bank review was filed in the Christensen case. But uh, the Zarda case, another three-judge panel decision, uh, was the one that our bank was granted on. So the one question is what the Second Circuit does if there is a cert petition at the Supreme Court. Do they try to get a decision out quickly? The argument's yeah. going to be September 26. Yeah, in the Zarda case. Um, uh, and the Supreme Court starts meeting the first Monday in October. Uh, they usually announce some cert grants the end of the week before because they have a big cert conference the week before. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes meet more than once the week before because they don't have any uh, hearings. Uh, All summer. Yeah, so, so the cert petitions pile up. But the question is, when will this petition be filed? Because Lambda has 90 days from the date that the on-bank uh, decision was announced and uh, or the denial of on-bank was announced, which means that technically they don't have to file this petition until the second week in October after the court has started meeting. And after they file the petition, the respondent has 30 days to file a response. Now, that that raises another interesting question because Georgia Regional Hospital didn't send a lawyer to the 11th Circuit merits argument. Uh, This this was really uh, amazing. And yet still won. 
<laughs> and still one. Greg Nevins of Lambda, who yeah. had, in fact, argued the Hively case in the Seventh yeah. Circuit just weeks before. Then he goes down to Atlanta to to argue uh, the Evans case in the Eleventh Circuit. And he's all up there by himself, and the judges made much fun of that. But, yeah. you know, they questioned him. But the point is you had a sort of odd panel there. You had a federal district judge sitting by designation from Florida. Uh, you had one of the liberal Democratic appointees on the Eleventh Circuit, and you had one of the conservative Republican who appointees. Who was being seriously looked at for the Supreme right, Court prior. at the time. was seriously being considered as a Supreme Court appointee by Trump. Uh, so they split three ways, basically. Uh, and Pryor said, no way, no way that, you know, Title Seven covers this. Uh, the uh, the Democratic appointee said, of course it covers it, you know, in channeling the EEOC. In the dissent. Uh, in the dissent. Uh, well, it was a partial concurrence, partial right. dissent. Uh, and uh, then you had the decision by the district judge sitting by designation who said, we can't decide that question because of an old Fifth Circuit precedent that's binding on the Eleventh Circuit because it predates the split when Congress divided up the Fifth Circuit and created the Eleventh Circuit. And in the 11th Circuit, we follow old Fifth Circuit precedents, and unless they've been supplanted by subsequent 11th Circuit precedents. And so that's binding on us. But, but there's a possibility she could file an amended complaint and make a sexual stereotyping claim. Uh, so, you know, it's, they, they went all over the place. Uh, I don't think Pryor was going for the sexual stereotyping claim. Uh, so it was really sort of weird. Uh, and there are so many different ways that case could go, which is why it's not necessarily the best vehicle to bring up to the Supreme Court, but it's what we've got. Right. So uh, Lambda Legal said, look, we got a circuit split. Even though we wanted to do this on bank first, although our, our, uh, our strategy here was not to go directly to the Supreme Court, but to get good on bank reversals of old precedents. So maybe we wouldn't have to go to the Supreme Court. Now, obviously, we're going to have to because the 11th Circuit doesn't want to consider this question on bank. I would say that one good thing about <clears throat> the state it's coming from is that there isn't a state law that she can rely on. Right. Like she in needs the, the New York law. cases. Yeah. Although, uh, depending where the hospital is, there, I guess the city of Atlanta has an anti-discrimination law, but I don't think there's hospitals in the city of Atlanta yeah. or else she would have filed under state law. Uh, so this one... You know, the Second Circuit has its ARDA argument on September 26th. Uh, the Supreme Court might not get around to ruling on the cert petition if Lambda doesn't file it until very late in the cycle. Uh, they might not be announcing whether they're going to grant cert until sometime late October or early November. So the Second Circuit hears argument before cert is granted, and they want to get, you know, put their oar in. Uh, they may want to move quickly to get an and opinion they, out. If you remember, they did that in the Windsor case when they yeah. were in a similar situation. Although that was just oh, a, just a panel. panel. But they got that decision they, out real right. quick. Just a few weeks after the argument. So it is possible that the, the Second Circuit, and, and pretty much everyone is predicting the Second Circuit is going to follow the Seventh Circuit. Uh, we don't know which theory they'll use, whether they'll use all the different theories or whether they'll focus on one of them. Uh, in fact, there are some rebellious district judges in the Second Circuit who have been anticipating the circuit and have been refusing to dismiss sexual orientation claims. Yeah, we talked about it last seven. month. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's an interesting situation. And if the Supreme Court accepts the view that Title VII should be broadly construed to apply to uh, sexual orientation claims and ultimately gender identity claims then all federal sex discrimination laws presumably could be interpreted that way, and we would have no need for the Equality Act. 
knocking on your wooden desk. It'd right. be a huge goal accomplished. I don't uh, know how much wood this is. <laughs> it sound like wood. Okay. Uh, but obviously, people have spent you know decades working on uh, non-discrimination, uh, accomplishing non-discrimination in the federal federal law. Um, so there's a, a you know a lot at stake in this case. Obviously. Yeah, and and one of the issues, of course, this is one another one of those cases. In, in addition to the masterpiece uh, cake shop. Uh, case, we would like to have it decided by the court as currently constituted and not a court as uh, constituted after a retirement or death of one of the uh, right. current judges. Uh, so it would be nice to get this question decided this term, assuming that the membership of the court remains the same this term. All right, we will take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss a disappointing decision from the Fifth Circuit in the challenge to Mississippi House Bill 1523. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. A three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit dissolved a preliminary injunction and dismissed two lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of HB 1523, the so-called Mississippi Freedom of Conscience Law, also known as a License to Discriminate Law, uh, that was enacted last year. Can you tell our listeners about it, Art? Yeah, this this statute was sort of uh, an omnibus throwing everything but the kitchen sink law, religious right, which was specifically passed for the purpose of protecting people who have religious objections to homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, bathroom access, wedding cakes, and you name it. Uh, <laughs> basically, what it said is. Here are some religious beliefs that we believe the state of Mississippi should protect to the extent of saying that if you act in accord with these religious beliefs or uh, they trying to avoid an establishment argument, they said religious beliefs or moral convictions. If you act in accord with these religious beliefs or moral convictions, you will not be subject to any adverse penalty by the state or any political subdivision of the state. Uh, you won't lose a license. You won't be subject to a fine. You you won't be disadvantaged in any way. You are absolutely free to do this. Now, the irony is that the state of Mississippi does not ban discrimination against gay or transgender people. Right. Either by state law or with the exception of one or two municipalities, maybe some university campuses. And uh, an attempt by the... Uh, no, there is no executive order in Mississippi. I'm thinking of Louisiana. Right. So there is no protection whatsoever in Mississippi for gay people anyway. Right. So this is a totally unnecessary law. It was basically passed to say, religious people, vote for us. I mean, this is the most cynical piece. So at any rate, uh, so there were two lawsuits that were filed challenging it, claiming it violated the Establishment Clause because it is taking certain religious beliefs and giving them a preference under state law and that it also uh, would violate equal protection and due process, and all kinds of arguments to be made here. But the problem is no one has specifically used the law against anyone yet. Yeah, for a simple reason, that these lawsuits were filed before the law was slated to go into effect, right. and District Judge Carlton Reeves issued an injunction, yeah. a preliminary injunction, saying there's a very, very good chance that I will find this law unconstitutional on one or more of these arguments, and therefore, let's stall it from going into effect while we decide so that no one will be injured. 
All right, so the Fifth Circuit looks at it, and they take the position that no one has been injured. And since no one has been injured, no one has standing to challenge the law yet. Yeah, and they said that the uh, stigma standing argument uh, does not work. Right, the idea that the very passage of the law puts a stigma on people and treats them as unequal. Uh, they didn't buy that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Lambda Legal, who's involved in one of the cases, said, no, we're going to file a petition for on-bank review in the yeah. Fifth Circuit. And Robbie Kaplan's also working on it. Yeah, Robbie Kaplan, uh, she, she uh, represents one group of plaintiffs, right. and Lambda Legal represents another group of plaintiffs, and they, the things were consolidated right. for trial. And Robbie Kaplan, by the way, it's news that we can share that she's... Uh, left Paul Weiss, and she's setting up her own law firm, and she's hiring, so yeah. people are interested. <laughs> and by continuing to work on this case. Yes, so. she will continue. She, she said the purpose of, of setting up the firm was to take the kinds of cases that she'd like to take. Uh, not that Paul Weiss was stopping her from taking civil rights cases. They were supporting her all the way on that. But the, the commercial litigation she likes to do, she said being in a big firm impeded the flexibility that she had to negotiate fee arrangements for interesting commercial cases. Uh, so she wants to set up a boutique to do the kind of litigation she wants to do, but it's going to also do a lot of gay rights work. Yep. All right. So that's all the time we have today. Uh, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again. Enjoy your summer, and we will see you in September.